Welcome to episode five of the Tom Schirmer podcast. Thanks for choosing to hang out again this week. As I always say, if you like what you hear, please spread the word, subscribe, and rate the podcast. Apparently, this whole podcast thing works off of ratings, so we want to try to expand the listening audience. So if you could slip onto Apple Podcasts or any other app, that would be greatly appreciated if you could drop a rating on there. Now, your feedback, your input, and suggestions for interview guests, possible segments, topics, how to make this a more enjoyable listening experience for you are most welcome. Also, of course, send me your topics, your questions for Assessment Corner. You can tweet me personally, that's at Tom Shimmer, or the show's Twitter handle, at Tom Shimmer Pod. You can also email, and the email for the show is TomShimmerPod at gmail.com. I'm so excited for today's pod as I have three student interns from Thrive Ed, the nonprofit out of the Minneapolis St. Paul area focused on reimagining school. You'll recall last week I had executive director and my close friend and colleague Nicole Dimich on to discuss the vision for Thrive Ed. So if you missed that one, make sure you go back and listen to that episode as well. The three students, Tiante, Anaya, and Nathan, are authentic, honest, and unapologetic about both their school experiences and what we as educators need to do to create a truly co-designed learning environment where the students are real decision makers. Now the interview runs a little longer than normal for two reasons. One, there's three of them. And two, I was not going to cut their time short. If there's anything we need to do as educators, it's listen to students more, not less. Now in the news includes a story about how the San Diego Unified School District is changing their grading practices to be more equitable. Uh, less punitive, and an international story uh, about an education summit planned for 2021 between the UK and Kenya. In Assessment Corner, I'm going to share three big ideas to focus on when shifting to more sound and grading and reporting practices. And as always, we finish up today's pod with Tweets of the Week. So that is the plan for today. So let's get to it. I'll have my conversation with the Thrive Ed student interns coming up momentarily. But first, don't at me, but I've got something to say, and that is that details matter. And ignoring them is not visionary, it's irresponsible. The 2009-2010 school year was my first year working at the district level. As I mentioned in a previous podcast, I was in school district number 67, which was the Okanagan-Skaha School District, which represents essentially the Penticton and Summerland area of the Okanagan Valley here in British Columbia. For those of you outside of Canada, the Okanagan Valley is about a four-hour drive east of the city of Vancouver. Now, this context is important to the story I'm about to share. Midway through that year, we, our entire uh, district staff, attended a regional superintendent's meeting with our Ministry of Education. Again, for those outside of Canada, education is purely a provincial jurisdiction. We have no National Department of Education. Anyway, the meeting was about the exploration of revamping our curriculum here in British Columbia for the 21st century. Yes, we were already a decade into the 21st century, but we were collectively ahead of the curve, actually, in terms of the conversation around North America. Now, the people at the Ministry of Education rolled out what they were talking about, what I now refer to as kind of 1.0 version of what they were proposing. It was the four R's and the seven C's. So you can imagine there were a lot of pirate sounds and themes and, you know, talking about sailing the seven C's and all of that. The four R's, of course, were reading, writing, arithmetic, and relationships. 
and the C's were, I believe, critical thinking, collaboration, creativity, communication, cultural understanding, uh, career preparation, and computer technology, something like that. Now, as a side note, British Columbia now, here in 2020, has what I think is a fairly exciting, progressive, and relevant curriculum redesign that really does focus on critical competencies for the 21st century. So if you want to check it out, just search the new BC curriculum on any search engine, and you'll find it right away. I don't get any royalties for that or anything. I just I just think we're on the right track, so it's worth checking out. Anyway, back to my story. So we're at this meeting, and it's mixed table groupings. So there's people from all over the region, as well as... Uh, some provincial representatives as well from different educational bodies. At my table, there just happened to be a recently retired superintendent who was part of the Retired Superintendents Association. They had also been invited to the meeting. So let me give you some background. Now remember, this is the 2009-2010 school year. In the late 2000s, of course, it seemed every education jurisdiction all over the world was going nuts for Finland. Primarily, but not exclusively, primarily because of the PISA results from both 2006 and 2009. If you'll recall, in 2006, Finland was number one in the world on the combined science scale. And in 2009, Finland was number three in the world on the combined reading scale. So the late 2000s were all about Finland. And there were some amazing things happening in Finland, and there still are today. So we're at this meeting and the conversation is essentially about the future of education here in British Columbia. So the overarching question was, what do we need to do? How do we need to revamp our system, our curriculum, et cetera, to ensure that BC students are keeping up or, you know, prepared for the 21st century? During our table talk, as I recall, we were sharing our thoughts and ideas around enhancements and revisions and what needed to be done. And we were sort of getting into some great conversation about that. So as the sharing comes around to the retired superintendent, the contribution was this. Blow it up. We need to blow up the system. Now, clearly, shock value was at least a partial motive here. And we were sort of realizing that this person was just going for the, you know, the, the, the hyperbole. But as we pressed this person on what was meant by blow it up, there were only references to the fact that the current system wasn't working and that we needed to start from scratch and all of that. No details, no specifics, just a so-called radical statement that undoubtedly had it been made just a couple of years later might have landed this person, you know, a thousand retweets and 500 followers on Twitter. We at my table kept pressing. How? Why? What would that look like? Now, what we got in return were a lot of Sir Ken Robinson quotes about the factory model and age groupings and creativity and all that. Now, this is in no way a slight on Ken Robinson, who recently and sadly passed away on August 21st. The impact that Sir Ken Robinson had on our collective thinking in education around the world is the stuff of historical legacy. So this is not about Ken Robinson. But this retired superintendent could not give one detail about what the reorganization would look like. Clearly, this was someone who just a few months earlier was responsible for the running of an entire school district. If anyone would have had a sense of what this could look like or would look like operationally, it would be this person, right? Wrong. We kept pressing. If not grade levels and not age groupings, then what? What would that look like? 
What would the schedule look like? Like, what would a day look like for a student? What would a teacher's workload be? That's a fair question, don't you think? I mean, don't teachers have the right to know kind of the nature and the scope of their work? If we have personalized learning and mixed groupings, well, okay, how mixed and how personalized? Are we going to have 10-year-olds in the same classrooms as 15-year-olds? Are, are the kids okay with that? Are, how would parents feel about that? Is that physiologically appropriate, developmentally? Is that, is that appropriate? We kept asking, but no details were provided. I found myself frustrated, not inspired, frustrated. And look, spare me the, hey, Tom, we need to just throw ideas out there and push the envelope, or there's no bad ideas. We need to try to uncover any possibilities. Look, I get that. I really do. And I've been a part of many of those conversations. But if you can't add one or even two sentences to your brainstormed idea, then is it really a good idea? Is, is it actually an idea worth pursuing? Now, here's the rub. Blow it up, remember. In 2006, the PISA results in science, Canada was number four in the world. Now, my province, British Columbia, on its own would have been number five in the world. So if you extract the provinces, you'd have Finland, number one. You'd have the province of Alberta, number two. Estonia 3, Hong Kong 4, British Columbia 5, Ontario 6, and Canada, the entire country, 7. Blow it up? 2009, Canada was number 5 in the world on the combined reading scale. BC on its own would have been 8th. So it was Shanghai, Korea, Finland, Hong Kong, the province of Alberta, the province of Ontario, Singapore, then British Columbia, then Canada. Now look, I am not advocating that we should judge a system solely on PISA. That's not what I'm saying. We had back then and still do had a lot to improve upon. Back then, we were talking about the reconciliation with our indigenous learners. We had a lot to improve upon where that's concerned. The continued support of our vulnerable learners. The continued support of our students with special needs. And, of course, our graduation rates and the dismantling of systemic racism that was within the system which sadly, a decade ago, was really not on the front burner of the conversations that we were having. Now, we had, the good news was, we had undertaken some collective work with education enhancement agreements provincially, you know, trying to create some agreements with Indigenous people, and specific memorandums of understanding about supporting unreserved learners, including adult learners. So we were doing a lot, but it was very much in its infancy. But blow it up? Like I said, that group group conversation left me frustrated. Now, the meeting itself was exciting and it left me feeling hopeful and optimistic, but that recently retired superintendent left me feeling just the opposite. Details matter. To neglect them or dismiss them is irresponsible. It's not visionary saying, well, I'm a visionary. I'll let others worry about the details. That's a cop-out. Leaders have to know what they're talking about. Now, maybe not at the level of expertise of everyone else, but some expertise would be nice. In so much of the work I do right now, especially around assessment and grading, details matter and replacement routines or ideas are critical to the successful implementation of changes that we want to see happen in our system. 
The easiest thing for someone like me to do is stand on a keynote stage and preach orthodoxy at people or hurl ideas at people without explaining at least one or two alternative possibilities of what to do differently. Like imagine if I'm doing a talk about standards-based grading and I'm talking about accuracy and assessment and talking about the elimination of zeros and penalties. I mean, that's not a new conversation, but let's just this is an easy one to sort of understand. The no zeros, no penalties, focus on accuracy. And everybody says, oh, great talk, Tom. And then afterwards, as we're getting coffee in between the segments, somebody comes up to me and says, Tom, I really enjoyed that. But uh, I get it. No zeros, no penalties. I'm with you. Uh, what should we do instead? And if my answer to that person is, well, look, I'm just a visionary. I just, you know, throw those ideas out there. I'm not a details guy. I mean, what an unbelievably, not just hollow, but irresponsible answer I'm giving that person who is looking for an idea of what this might look like. That's not only unfair, it's irresponsible. Now, certain options may not be logistically possible. So you throw an idea out there and then maybe someone else riffs off your idea and then the collective conversation comes around to something that will work or be cutting edge or be progressive. And I agree that we are only limited by our imagination. But our imagination needs to have some substance if it's going to be taken seriously. But this is where so many outside of education who comment on education lose me. Again, I'm not being cynical. If those outside of education have better ideas for how education can work, then I'm all for it. But just criticizing or spouting platitudes doesn't cut it. I don't think it's asking too much for a little bit of detail on how someone's grand plan would be executed. I don't think that's asking too much. Look, is there a place for brainstorming? Sure. But when you're in a serious conversation about a potential path forward, we need much more than hyperbole. Not all details need to be provided, but some. I mean, without some details, the whole thing just feels hollow. Well, I know there's another side to this coin, right? And that there's people within the system who will resist change at all costs and will, unless everything is laid out for them, just won't move forward. They'll throw their hands up and say, I can't do anything unless you give me the step-by-step crystal clear picture. I'm not saying we need to go down to that level of granularity. We know those people exist. We know those teachers exist. We know those principals exist. We know those superintendents exist. Why? Because we know those people exist in every profession. That's because they're in every walk of life. Without any details, however, you're never going to win those people over. With some details or specifics, you at least have a fighting chance. Details are what make you look thoughtful, and you are thoughtful. What sells on social media is quite different than real, meaningful change or meaningful conversations. Details are what reveal your willingness to move past the superficial. Details mean you're ready to get messy alongside with those who are likely to be charged with being different. Details mean you're prepared to be wrong. Details matter. They matter a lot. And to ignore them is to be professionally short-sighted and personally irresponsible. Okay, joining me today for the interview are three students from Thrive Ed in the Minneapolis area. You recall last week I had Executive Director Nicole Dimich on. Uh, so today I thought it would be a great follow-up to have three of the students and student interns uh, on to talk about their experiences as well. I hope you were as inspired as I was 
from what Nicole had to say about Thrive. So here we are. Let me introduce today's guests. We have three students with us. The first student is Anaya Bailey. She is at Twin Cities Academy, right? Go Tigers. And in Anaya's dream school, she would want to see every form of equity. That's social equity, racial equity. She would also want to close the opportunity gap, see mutual respect between staff and students, more freedom and choices for students, and better food. <laughs> I love that. Uh, Tiante Bryson is joining us from Minnetonka High School. Go Skippers. And in Tiante's uh, dream school, there would be no drama. Wouldn't that be awesome? No drama, no problems. It would just be students coming to learn and teachers making an effort to support their students in any shape or form so that they can reach their full potential. And finally, we have Nathan Janine, who's joining us from Minneapolis Washburn High School. Go Millers. And in Nathan's dream school, the biggest difference would be that the students would be working with the adults uh, not for the adults. And again, that's a, a great way to launch our conversation. So with all of that, I want to welcome the three of you to the Tom Schimmer podcast. Thanks for having us, Tom. Great, great. Um, excited to have you here. And I want to dive right in because I think there's a ton to talk about. And, and uh, you know, I've been listening to Nicole. Of course, Nicole and I are very close and we work closely together. And as she's been talking about Thrive, and the more I hear about it, the more excited I get about the work that she's doing, that you're doing, your, your teachers are doing. Everything about Thrive has just got me super inspired. So I want to begin, uh, and I'm, I'm going to start with you, Anaya. Could you just talk to us a little bit about, we're going to take the big picture at first. Talk to us a little bit about why did you get involved with Thrive and how would you describe uh, the work that you're doing at Thrive Ed? Um, I think for a long time, um, in my, you know, 16 years of life, I've just always thought about like changing things and especially school because of my experiences personally. So when I was given this opportunity, it was like a no brainer almost because it was finally something that I could be actively doing and like, you know, like, it's this actual thing and I'm with other people who think the same way as me and like able to, um, give different ideas, give different um, perspectives of all of these things. And I just thought that was really cool. Um, I joined when I was 15, I'm pretty sure. So that was cool. Um, and yeah, the work that we do, the work that we do, I would describe as like giving students a voice overall. And like with us being student interns, we are like the student voice that we're trying to portrayed to other teachers, um, other educators and things like that. It's, uh, it's, it's a great opportunity to bring students into the conversation. Uh, Nathan, I want to throw that question to you as well. Uh, and Tiante, I'm going to come back to you on, uh, th thirdly on the same question. So Nathan, why did you get involved with Thrive Ed and how would you describe the work that's happening at Thrive? Yeah, so I think, you know, in education, we always hear about uh, gaps in achievement, which are very important, trust me. Uh, but one of my biggest issues going through my educational journey was a gap in belief. And that kind of had to do with the structures in place we had in school and not really feeling like that served me as it should have. Uh, so, you know, one given the opportunity to work with Thrive Ed, I kind of saw it uh, as a way to completely reimagine the school paradigm. And that's kind of what we've been doing ever since. Um, I think our work has been ever changing since I first started with RiveEd two summers ago in June. Uh, kind of like Anaya said, it's very collaborative. I know like 
every school or school district has like a student engagement like department or something like that but there is no student engaged students are the like they're everything so that's completely different from what i've seen in like you know my school or like other places literally everything we do has to go through a student's go ahead and usually every idea that comes up uh comes from a student so uh we don't really even like like the teachers there we don't call them like miss mr whatever they're just they're there to be our support and they are what's their like official name no, i never uh, i don't want someone to chime in but i don't remember but yeah they're great and uh they're really more there to support us than engagement guides yeah, yeah. they're more there to support us and guide us than they are to you know lecture us and uh yeah well and that picks up on what you had talked about in terms of your dream school which is you know students working with the adults not working for the adults. And it sounds to me like the environment at Thrive Ed is really cultivating that and, and living up to its promise. Uh, could you, could you, Nathan, just expand a little bit on what you mean by the uh, belief gap? So like, uh, you, usually when the belief gap is brought up, it's like, it's sometimes it's like for teachers, like they may not believe in their ability, but the same thing applies to students where, mm. you know, you could be a bright student, you could you know, be, you can work hard, but hard work and, you know, I wish I could say hard work and academic uh, potential could be measured on a sliding scale, like a test score. Uh, it can't because that's just not how life works. So like, uh, I was never a good standardized test taker. So I would go in, I wouldn't do so hot on a standardized test. I'd be like, oh wait, you know, maybe I'm not the brightest kid in the room. Or, you know, I'd go into a classroom and you look at the power paradigm in a classroom and it's very, uh, especially in Minnesota and in the Twin Cities, we basically have all white teaching staffs for even our most diverse schools. And sometimes you have trouble connecting with your teacher and building that relationship and the relationships in the classroom. And sometimes that leads to uh, a lack of belief in your own ability uh, in and outside of the classroom. So if that's with, you know, school, getting involved, you know, pushing yourself to take accelerated courses, et cetera, et cetera. Atiante, uh, same to you. Uh, why Thrive Ed? Why did you get involved with Thrive Ed? And how would you describe uh, the work you're doing at Thrive Ed? I chose Thrive Ed because um, I found it as a way to make change, especially with like my background, with how, with how school was going for me, all the way up to, I'll say, elementary. And elementary and middle school. Um, I just wanted to make change because I was getting tired of like the same old structure and mm-hmm. the same, the same, what's the word I'm looking for? I can't really think of it right now, but just the same, the same structure that school has been teaching us for many, many years, even decades before we were even in school. And uh, I saw this as an opportunity to make change. And um, I feel like the work that we've been doing is like really the foundation of what we want to accomplish in the future. Because like Nathan and Anaya said, like everything with us and Thrive Ed is collaborative and it's not really nobody is above anybody. So that's what we like, that's our goal that we want to achieve for all, for all schools. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, that's much it. Well, I appreciate that. And, you know, again, it, it really is, there's, there's so often an education where we as adults, we talk a good game. We talk about student engagement. We talk about student voice. 
we talk about a truly collaborative uh, environment. And yet when push comes to shove, neither of those things or any of those things tend to authentically emerge in the school experience. And it sounds to me, again, I just can't reiterate enough uh, how much that seems to be manifesting in uh, your experiences at Thrive Ed. Okay, before we get to, um, you know, the details of the work you're doing and, and some of the amazing things that are happening uh, with, with your research and the things that you've been presenting and the way all that works unfolding, I have to ask you about the events of this past summer. Um, you know, you, you all are in the Minneapolis area and, you know, not just you all, the, the world witnessed George Floyd's murder. And I asked this question of Nicole and I'm going to ask you all as well. The world witnessed George Floyd's uh, murder last May and certainly all that happened in the aftermath of, of that. There was, you know, the protests, the riots, the, the racial tension that, that emerged, uh, not just in Minneapolis, but all over the United States and literally all over the world. So I'm wondering about a few things. One is, you know, obviously those events impacted you greatly, but how did those events impact your work at Thrive and your, your connection to what you're trying to accomplish at Thrive? In other words, did it kind of expand your work? Did it accelerate the work? Did it crystallize you? Did it, did it motivate you? Did it get you more determined? I'm going to start with you. Uh, let's, Tiante, let's go back to you to begin with. Where, you know, we, how did those events of George Floyd's murder and the subsequent sort of events that happened over the summer, how did it impact, you know, you personally, but, but how did it impact your mission for what we're trying to accomplish at Thrive? Um, it, it really, like, pushed me to work harder at achieving what I want to achieve as a Black male in America. Because um, when a event, when a situation happened, um, it was my mom who showed me, and then all she could say about it was that she was she was mad, she was pissed because at any time that could be, she was like that could be you, you know, that could be my own son, mm -hmm. and so that really like sunk into me at that time, especially that was the time where it was like during quarantine, so like emotions were high, and um, it really, it really pushed me to make sure that I'm always on the right path and not letting anything, you know, come in that way. And so when, when Thrive came around again, it was just like a way to, you know, show what I can really do and put my mind forth and make sure that, you know, my efforts don't go unnoticed as a black male. Nathan? Yeah, I think, I don't, I don't know why I remember so vividly, but May 26th, the, the morning after uh, George Floyd was murdered, I was actually on a Zoom call uh, with the folks at Thrive Ed. So it was me, Jazzy, and Shannon. Hopefully you can meet them in the foreseeable future. And I remember we were like talking about something and, you know, sometimes I like do this where I look down at my phone and like I was doing this and then I saw the, the video that is kind of, you know, spread across the world. And I remember I was so in shock. Uh, I, I actually, we just, I left the Zoom call and we ended it early. Um, and I just went down to 38th Chicago, the intersection where George Floyd was murdered. And at first it kind of was like, I wanted to think it wasn't real. That's like the whole reason I went down there because it was so close to home. Like it was literally a matter of blocks away from my middle and high school. And like, I used to like catch my bus transfer down there. Uh, so like I went down there to check it out. I'm like, oh geez, uh, it is real. 
And at the time, I remember there was maybe 10, 20, maybe at best 30 people there. And then just kind of slowly watching it grow into like one of the biggest civil rights movements in U.S. history just been kind of like about damn time. Because like the thing with Minneapolis and Minnesota is like, you don't, you don't always think about this, but like we have some of the worst disparities in the country. Like when it comes to home ownership, poverty, and your education, hands down, like we have one of the biggest gaps in achievement. Uh, and it's kind of like, oh, we had to wait until this until we said, oh, we're going to go ahead and do something. Uh, so I think, you know, going into the summer and especially with the work and Thrive Ed, it's kind of like you can't ignore these issues anymore they're right in front of you and you have to confront them face on or else, you know, you're, you're wasting time. Yeah. The response was, was so immediate and, and truly global. I mean, obviously Minneapolis, St. Paul area was, was where the events took place and, and certainly happening organically, but you know, all over the world, I, I live in Vancouver, Canada, and uh, we, you know, right away, there was just a, 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 a galvanized mindset around just this is enough is enough. And um, I, I've never seen it collectively uh, responded to that way. Um, Anaya, let's go to you. Uh, the events of the summer, George Floyd, the protests, the racial tension in Minneapolis and around the world. Um, your thoughts? Um, the main thing that it, that it is and has been just emotional to me. Like every time looking back at it, I just, I just get emotional because it's, like, even way back when Philando Castile was um, murdered, like, why are we still doing this again? Yeah. And it's like, I've tried to involve myself in this since since Philando Castile happened. Um, since, since forever, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, not forever. Not that old. But <laughs> looking back, I wish I was more involved. It was a little different for me because we were in quarantine and I had a pregnant mom at home. So she was not trying to let me go out to protest and all this other stuff that was happening. And also I didn't have my phone at the moment. I felt like I was just so distant from everything and I wanted to be, be a part of it. Um, when I did start, when we did start back with Thrive, it did feel like I had a community to lead on, lean on. And also um, in this other group that I'm a part of, we talked about it. Um, we talked about it a lot as well. And it was just nice to have, like I said, other people who care about the same things as you, who can relate to you and who can, you know, grieve with you. And I just, like I said, it's very emotional. And even just before this meeting, I was looking back at the protest and like everyone involved and all that and just getting teary eyed because even now it's still emotional and I'm glad it's um, starting something, but I think we really do need to continue more than black screens, more than hashtags, more than, you know, people saying that they're um, fighting for justice, but more actual action. So that's what I'm looking forward to. And that's how that affected me. Yeah. There's a lot of, uh, I suppose that uh, there's a lot of checks being written right now that need to be cashed around allyship, uh, around the heavy lifting. You're right. It's it's uh, it, maybe it starts with hashtags. It starts with black screens. It starts with all of that. But the you know the movement can't be something that we look back upon. I said this in a 
a previous conversation with Anthony Muhammad, I said, you know, Black Lives Matter can't be something where we look back and say, hey, remember when we did Black Lives Matter last summer? Uh, this needs to be an ongoing heavy lift that uh, everyone collectively um, needs to be involved in continuously and and not lose stamina and, and not lose steam, but 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 continue to to work toward that. So um, obviously a very uh, emotional time for all of you. And uh, I just I can't imagine how challenging that was for you at the time and continuing to be today. Okay, let's let's pivot to your work with ThriveEd and talk a little bit about. We're going to go through a number of different aspects of schooling and and hoping that you will share some of your experiences and uh, and and how how ThriveEd may has maybe has the potential to impact how schools operate and the opportunities that are provided to students. So Nathan, I'm going to begin with you uh, and ask you about sort of curriculum. Has there have there been times in your school experience where teachers have actually sort of either through lessons or through content where they've actually asked you what you were interested in learning? And if so, um, what did that look like? And how did that make you feel as a learner when teachers reached out to you and said, you know, what, what are you interested in? Mm, I just want to say no. And then like, Thank okay. you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair. And uh, I'll be honest. Let's talk about, let's talk about that then. Let's yeah, talk about okay. the no. I'll try and expand on it a little. Uh, yeah, I'll be honest. No. Uh, I think especially when you get into the high school years, teachers will always use the excuse of a standardized test at the end of the year. Like you got to get you ready or there's an AP exam at the end of the year. We got to get you ready or all of that stuff. So, uh, you know, especially where, you know, I'm I'm on the IB track, so all my school, all my classes are IB IB classes. So every teacher will give you the excuse of you got to get you ready for the test at the end of the year. And even looking back into elementary, middle school, uh, there really was no time for reflective feedback. Uh, it was just kind of like let's get you ready for the state mandated standardized test so we can put you on a track to measure your success on a arbitrary test score. Deontay, what about you? Any any opportunities you've ever had where teachers have actually reached out to you? And if not, w why do you think that is? Have, have said, what, what are you interested in? What do you want to learn or what do you like to learn? I can't, I can't remember the time a teacher um, reached out to make sure that um, I was given like the best opportunity in education I could get. Um, it's always been like, do this, do this, do this, do this. And if you do what I tell you to do, then you'll be successful. Mm -hmm. But um, even when you do do all those things, it's always um, a wall right there in front of you because it's always the stereotype of, okay, you're a black child, young black child with no father, so you're going to act like this. And then when you see that, when you see that um, portraying on you, you kind of like fall into that trap of like stereotype and so it's like teachers never really like they would do that but they wouldn't understand why I was acting out so they wouldn't understand that all actions was affecting me and so it was it was really hard to achieve in um, especially elementary because I was always book smart but it was always that little Thing that will like hold me back from not achieving what I was truly meant to achieve. 
Anaya, have you ever had uh, teachers ask you what you're interested in? What would you like to learn? Has there ever been an opportunity uh, for you to to have that experience with a teacher? And if not, why do you why do you think that is? There has never been an opportunity where I remember a teacher saying, "Hey, Anaya, what do you want to learn about?" But I did go to a Montessori elementary school mm -hmm. from third to second. I mean, from third to fifth grade. So basically what that is is they it's like a different form of learning where it's more hands-on and like different almost like co-design but not quite so when i had that opportunity i kind of took it by force and i just kind of you know did what i wanted when it came to like what i wanted to learn and how i wanted to learn it so that's when i started learning about like the civil rights movement and like you know, Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, because they weren't, they weren't choosing to teach me that. They didn't ask me if I wanted to learn it, but I stumbled upon it and just continued in that. Um, I think why teachers don't is because they're not taught to. Like, that's not what the system is made to do. It's not about choice. Like, not until you're in college, at least. And um, I think it definitely needs to change. You know, that's why. I am a part of Thrive, Ed. Yeah, yeah that's that co-design co co piece is such a big part of the work that you're doing at Thrive. And, you know, Tiante, you had mentioned, you know, the definition of success, do what I say and you'll be successful. But I think one of the overarching questions we're asking right now as educators is whose definition of success? What does success mean? And, and is success being narrowly defined as it always has been? Or are we expanding to be a... a a more inclusive, to include a more inclusive and expansive definition of, of, of what success in school looks like. And I think that's a question that um, if, we, if we take a silver lining of what's happened over the summer, uh, we definitely see schools and school districts and others taking much more seriously the question about equity within the curriculum, equity around what success looks like. Uh, and I, and I, I feel cautiously optimistic about where that work can go. But as we talked about earlier, uh, there needs to be some stamina about that as well. Um, let's, let's move into the, the school uh, environment. And so, and I, I'm gonna come back to you to begin with. Um, what, what is something about your school experience that you felt sort of could have been better? In other words, um, can you think of a time, uh, maybe a specific time where you felt from your perspective that the education system, um, and again, listeners, I, I don't want you, I, we're not trying to be harsh here, but can you, from a student's perspective, talk about a time where the system failed you, where you feel like the education system let you down and the education system sort of failed you and it just was a moment that really sort of, you know, was so impactful to you uh, in your life as a student? When I started thinking about things like this, I started thinking about like later in my elementary years, like to middle school. Um, that's when I started really middle school, definitely, because I went to a, I started going to Twin Cities Academy, a school in St. Paul, Minnesota. Um, and I was one out of two black girls in my, in my grade. I didn't see a lot of representation of myself um, in my school. So I felt like teachers, took that and ran with it like I didn't never I never felt supported by my school until later on in my life um I did have an advisory teacher who was a person of color and that was like the golden moment for me um 
one specific moment I will say is when I had teachers who blatantly like just disrespected um, students of color and I saw it with my own eyes or I experienced it. Um, just in particular, one history teacher I remember having, she just, even my mom came in and um, shadowed the classroom one day and seen everything that I was telling her about how she um, discriminated against students of color for the reasons that I don't know. Um, and just experiencing that firsthand and seeing it firsthand, it just made me feel almost worthless. Like, you're my teacher, you're supposed to be educating me, you're supposed to be helping me. But, you know, it's not happening in the way it should be. And I feel like that happens way more than it should. Um, and everywhere, especially like Nathaniel was saying, especially in Minnesota. I, I just, I can't imagine how that must have made you feel as just a, a young student, just feeling like it was an impossible situation and there really wasn't much you could do about it and, and just feeling helpless and having your mom come and just realizing that that was taking place. Uh, Nathan, let's go to you. Uh, let's talk also for you, um, specific moment or just general comments about uh, other times where the school system has either at least either let you down or or failed you altogether. Okay, uh, I'll be generous and give you a few. Uh, we'll work we'll work backwards. So sure, early as this year. Uh, so I go to a fairly diverse school. Uh, we're about fifty percent students of color. Uh, our national honor society is basically completely white. Our IB cohort most years are usually completely white. Uh, we have an absolute oligarchy on student voice. Uh, kind of looking back a little more to more specific experience. I remember it was, my, it was my freshman year and I went in to talk to a teacher because like they needed to like sign off for you to take a class called AP Chemistry. And I went in, I'm like, hey, can I take this class? And she said, no. Which first of all, I don't think a teacher should decide what class you're prepared for and not prepared for. And I was like, oh, wow. Okay. Which kind of messes you up because in high school, you're put on tracks on how you can succeed and, you know, the courses you take. So I got a no, which I was like, no. Uh, and I was like, okay, well, I couldn't take that class because she said, Nathaniel, I don't think this is what she thought. She said, Nathaniel, I don't think you can handle three advanced courses. Yeah. So she said, you know, Nathaniel, you're not prepared to take three advanced courses and then you know it's my senior year and I take eight advanced courses with ease so it's kind of like don't don't do that and then even going back to like I think it was fourth grade where uh I, I used to get like pulled out of the classroom because like Nathaniel did not do good on reading tests like I would just like absolutely bomb them all the time I'm sorry I'm not sorry at all but you would think like that extra support is like you know, we're here to help you, Nathaniel. But isolation from the classroom and kind of like that devaluing of your potential is like, mm -hmm. it doesn't help at all. And it never did. Mm -hmm. And like, I like, like I contributed to a book that's supposed to be published like next month. Like, I think my reading comprehension skills are fine, but trust me, that definitely didn't help at all. So yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a win and congratulations on, on contributing to the book. And certainly again, um, you have you have proved those ideas about your potential 
wrong. Tiante, any thoughts around where the school system, either specifically or generally, has has let you down or or maybe failed you altogether? Where you know what are some of the things that have you've experienced in in your life as a student? Um, there's there's a lot that I couldn't think back on, but when I was first aware about it was really last year. Um, so before I went to, before I went to Minnetonka, which is, I'm, this is my first year at Minnetonka my junior year. So my sophomore, freshman, and even my middle school years, I was in St. Louis Park. And um, St. Louis Park public schools is very diverse. And so, but if you go there, and you wouldn't you wouldn't see that at all like mm -hmm. at all um it's very it's it's very you know split up into groups so you have the white kids you have the black kids you have the hispanics and you have you know you know all these different um races just together and you even see that with um how they did ap and ib classes um most most AP classes in St. Louis Park is like filled with white kids. And they don't, I feel like that's, that is is the way it is because of how the school didn't push, push the idea of, um, you know, other different groups to, you know, that they can actually like be a part of some higher classes because it's always um I had a friend who once did bad on a on a reading test and they brought her down to the lowest level of, of reading in a reading class and they realized that she was too smart for the class after like two days and then brought her back to the original class that she was in and I could see after that that just really brought her down because it's like well why would you do that it's just it's just one test you know it's not based on how it's not supposed to be based on how smart you are. And I feel like that's that's the way um, St. Louis Park handled a lot of kids of um, who are not white, just because they did bad on, on tests, they don't deserve to be up in higher classes. And so, and that that's really took a big um, toll on me also, because I felt like I couldn't be a part of those classes also, because I felt comfortable being around with people who looked like me. And because I didn't want to, be left out it's uh it's it's so important for us as teachers you know educators to not underestimate anyone's potential to uh to be successful and there's a huge difference between you know making sure that you know what you're learning in this moment is you know not out of reach for you so it frustrates you but doesn't undercut your potential as a learner so i think that's a question that we all have to ask ourselves whether unintentionally or intentionally uh, it happens and students are left feeling as if they are less than uh, their peers and, and not gaining access to, to the programs that they really should. Uh, let's turn to uh, Tiante. I'm going to stick with you on, on the next question and, and we'll, we'll go around. I'm just interested in student voice. You, you talked a little bit about this in one of your earlier answers, but what do you think the barriers are to in schools? What, what's getting in the way of allowing student voice to thrive uh, in, in schools? Like where, where, where are we, what, what are the barriers to push us past the lip service that we give to student voice to get to an authentic opportunity for, for students to have a, a co-design opportunity? I feel like the barrier is when 
teachers feel like they have power, you know. And of course they of course they their teachers, you know, we they have authority, but it's when they abuse that power to make students feel less, to make sure that, you know, they always stay on top. And then who's who mo and then after the teachers, it's always the principals, and after principals it's always the um, of the school board. And so it's it's never equal. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's always, even when students do try to make an attempt to have a voice, they always get shut down because um, either the principal is, isn't listening, the um, mm-hmm. school board isn't listening, or the teacher isn't listening. So it's, I, I'll give examples. Let's say, let's say a student gives an advice on how the classroom should be ran. And then the teacher agrees with that. And but then the teacher um, shares the advice with the principal and then it just stops right there. You know, and it doesn't the principal doesn't talk about it to the school board. And so the advice is never heard of to them. And so it's not implemented into classrooms where it could be useful. So I feel like if there if the if that if we were all on like a certain type of level, like the same level. Um, there wouldn't be any barriers between us. And, and part of it is just being heard, isn't it? I mean, sometimes ideas that come from students are not possible. Uh, it may not be you know, feasible for a school or a teacher or anyone to accomplish what it is you're asking, but at least to be heard and to have that sort of perspective acknowledged. And then if it's not possible, then just being given a reason as to why. Why can't this occur? I think too often, you know, I've been in situations personally where, you know, we solicit information from different stakeholders, including students. But then when we decide not to take their advice or not to go down the direction that that they've suggested, I think we owe them an explanation to, to explain why this is not possible for us. And I think that alone helps people feel heard, helps them feel seen, helps them feel as though the contribution isn't just lip service or a waste of time. So I appreciate that. Um, Anaya, any thoughts around barriers, around student voice, what's getting in the way? And, and maybe let's, let's take a slightly different angle. What do, you, what do you think could be done to take some of those barriers away? And how might we, we move in a, in a more positive direction around student voice? Um, I will agree with Tiante on like, it starts with the system, first of all, because like I said before, it's not made to, listen to us you know it's just this system that we're supposed to follow along with and then it goes to teachers who are enforcing these things in their class and not listening to students um and then i think students who are just afraid to um speak out about things i was never that kid ever since elementary school so i have experiences personally where um, a teacher, a new teacher would come in. It was a very small school, so everything was very tight knit. Mm-hmm. And this new teacher would come in and say, "Oh, da 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 da," and I'd, you know, come against him on that because that's what I felt, and that's what I, that's what my um, classmates felt. But they didn't say it. I would say, it. and then it was a whole huge thing. I'd get sent to the office because my opinions were just, you know, and I was respectful about it, always respectful, mm-hmm. but. I think it's a pride thing when it comes to teachers and like, like Tiante said, like their authority, their so-called power, they feel like they're up here and a student isn't supposed to test that. And so that's what students are like made to believe that they 
they can't test what the teacher says. Mm-hmm. And that's just how our system is overall. Um, I think our generation is getting to a point where we're more outspoken um, on certain things, just like the riots, the, the protests that are happening now. I think we are getting to a point where we're getting more comfortable with speaking, speaking out about things. Mm-hmm. Um, even allies of the Black, Light, Black Lives Matter movement, mm-hmm. um, you know, allies supporting the students of color that they see getting treated badly in schools and stuff. So I think we are getting there. I think what what more, what needs to be done more is more of teachers listening and really taking in the information. And like you said, and not just being lip service. Right, right. Um, just for listeners, uh, when I was watching your presentation and I online, uh, you have what I think is right to this date, one of my favorite quotes of all time, um, where when you said uh, the time where you became dangerous uh, and that was because you're describing your experience of getting in trouble and, and voicing your perspective. Uh, you said when, when white people in power cross paths with passionate young black children who know what they're talking about. And uh, that, that quote is going to stick with me um, for a very long time, if not forever. Nathan, I, I want to turn to you and I want to ask you a slightly different question on this same theme. You know, there is the idea of student voice, and then there's a line between student voice and disrespect. So from a teacher's perspective, how, and I know I'm putting you on the spot a little bit here, but, but how, how, you know, what, what advice would you give to a teacher to say, you know, where's that line where, you know, just because a student is voicing their opinion doesn't mean they're being disrespectful. And often when we talk, when I talk to teachers and I know when Nicole and others, you know, do workshops, we say, careful what you wish for, because as soon as you start engaging students and, and encouraging student voice, you might not like what you hear and you have to be prepared to accept the, the message that you're receiving. So I know that some teachers may mistakenly think students speaking up or voicing their perspective as a sign of disrespect. And, but it isn't always that. And many times, more often than not, it probably isn't that. So I'm just wondering from your perspective, from a student perspective, how, how would a teacher know that the student is, is sort of voicing a perspective and not trying to be disrespectful? Yeah, I think, I think the way you find that out is by having a more personal relationship with your students. Uh, you know, of course, you know, kids are always going to raise their hand and say, I don't like this. That's a given. But if you can build that relationship with a student and you find the time to connect with that student and be like, hey, Nathan, how are you doing? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Good to know. That's valuable. I think with student engagement, like, to me, there's like three big no-no's. That's a really loud claim. Uh, that's okay. <laughs> surveys, that, yep. that's, not, that's not student voice. That's a, that's a survey. You know, right. ninth grade Nathaniel, they say we have a survey to take. I'm not going to do the survey. I'm going to sit there, you know, space X, space X, space X. I'm going to just go play like Roblox or something. I'm not going to do that. I don't care. Uh, number two, listening, it's like, that's great. Like, that's the bare minimum. Sure. When you go into a conversation, have the intent of doing something after the fact. I think third thing is, you know, even with, I love Minneapolis public schools with all my heart, but like, even up to like, highest tippy top district leadership don't ask two kids to join a zoom call and then have them sit there for two hours and then at the very end say 
hey, students, do you have something to add? And then get that checkbox and like, don't do anything about it. That is the most frustrating thing ever. Mm -hmm. Or like, even when you ask students to like, like, oh, can you come like speak on this issue? If you don't have an intent for them to do something, just don't, don't waste their time. Right. And I don't say that because student engagement doesn't matter. I, I, I just say that because uh, that tokenization, and trust me, I have felt it a lot, mm -hmm. uh, can kind of be like, you kids are just going to start saying no. And right. Yeah. You can't, you can't have these meetings where, you know, you just, you give a nod so that we can put on a piece of paper that we had two students attend, but really don't allow them a meaningful contribution to, to the work. And you'd almost rather not be consulted than to be consulted in that kind of superficial manner, wouldn't you? Yeah. And then I, th I think at a certain point we're like, sometimes, you know, a school district may announce a project and like, let's go get student engagement. And then they wonder why is student engagement so low? And then they're like, maybe because the last five times you just use them as a checkbox and they're like, I'm not going to waste my time. Right. Right. So I want to finish up. Uh, this is, Oh, go ahead. Anaya. go ahead. Okay. I just want to add something just like some outside the box thrived thinking here. Um, just as you guys were talking and as Nathaniel was talking, I was just thinking like, what if, they had students on the, the board of the school and like had them in on the meetings and, you know, almost like a class president or what's it like mm -hmm. a leadership club type of thing, but mm -hmm. you can be in on the board meetings and listen to what they're saying and have input on what they're saying. Yeah. It's like, these are the type of things that we should be working towards because um, like Tiante was saying earlier, we've been, they've been doing school the same way for, forever yeah. and it's time to make some change right yeah i think i'll, I'll add on to that really quickly sure uh minneapolis minneapolis does have a board of education uh, they, they have a student representative on the board of education and i've had the great privilege of being able to be the student rep the last eight months mm -hmm. and even with that a student rep is a great position and it is a position that is far and few between in Minnesota, but even that can become like the most tokenizing four hour meetings of your life, uh, especially when they don't give kids a vote. Like that may seem crazy. Like yeah. why would you give 17 year old Nathaniel a vote on a $1.1 million contract? They do it places like I, there's kids in Maryland, Maryland. They, they have some counties where student representatives get a vote. Uh, so even with stuff like that, like, don't, don't just have them sit there and be like, hello, everyone. I'm going to play on my laptop for four hours. You know, right. a vote doesn't hurt. It's, it's the meaningfulness of, of the experience versus just having your, again, having your name on paper and, and saying that we had a couple of students or we have a student representative on the school board is very different than allowing you the opportunity to make a meaningful contribution to the conversations, whatever they, they might be, um, certainly. Um, things that to think about in terms of for all listeners out there, if you work at the school district level, uh, you know, one, do you have a student representative? And, and if you don't, then maybe we consider what, what that might look like. 
And two, if, if rules or laws or things need to be changed to allow students to have a more meaningful contribution to the conversation, then we should pursue that as well. I think that's, that's what I'm hearing from you all loud and clear is to, is to have that, uh, that kind of voice uh, in, in that conversation. I wanna finish up with, uh, it's not our very last question, but our, our last question of, of this segment is about advice. And I wanna know from each of you, and uh, uh, Nathan, I'm gonna start with you. If we go back to the idea of, if, if a teacher approached you and said, okay, I'm, I'm in, I want to reimagine school, I want to change the way we do school. Now I'm a classroom teacher, I don't have a lot of influence at the board level. I, I maybe not have much influence at the school level with the administration, but I want to change the experience for students in my classroom. So Nathan, what advice would you give that teacher if, if that's what they came to you with that question? And I'm going to go, come to each of you on this question. Uh, do it. Uh, no. uh, I think, you know, a lot of teachers will be like, oh, well, I've never seen another teacher do it. I'm not going to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, be the outlier. Who, who, who cares? Uh, yeah. You know, as much as I like to, you know, talk, you know, talk about my school experience, I actually, distance learning, probably the one teacher out of my entire pre-kindergarten through 12th grade experience, yes, it took me until 12th grade uh, to get that teacher who was different and didn't really do things the same way as every other teacher that has literally ever existed in my life. Uh, you know, literally the first thing, the first assignment we had to do was just called degrading. And it was about what's the point of education? What's the point of learning? And there's this great saying that uh, a friend told me, he's a professor at Metro State University. He said, never let your education get in the way of your learning. And that was just kind of the foundation of the entire class moving throughout the entire year. So like, we took our first test last week. He, I've never heard a teacher say, don't worry about it. Like you can, you can have a teacher say, don't worry about the test. And you're like, no. And then like, you just, kids spend like, how was every way we could possibly cheat on this test? That didn't happen. He said, don't worry about the test. People trusted him because he had a certain persona going into the school year and going, you know, into the curriculum that kids were able to take the test and rest assured that test did not determine my grade in the course. And it still hasn't like, I did moderately okay on it, but like that didn't determine my success in the course and that's okay. And honestly speaking, of the classes that I've done distance learning this year with, the class that is least based on grades has probably been where the most learning is. And especially like looking back into last spring, like, you know, when everything got canceled and crisis hit, you know, what was the first thing we did? We got rid of test scores and grades. And I think I brought up standardized tests in like every answer. And I'm proud of that. And we got rid of test scores and grades. All of a sudden, what did we value? you know, keeping students connected, you know, student-teacher relationships, connection with families, et cetera. So it's kind of, what do you value as an educator and what do you want your students to value in their educational experience? Right, and don't be afraid to be the first person to transform, reimagine, build those relationships, have that trust with your students, I love that. Uh, Teante, let's talk to you about, what advice would you give a teacher who is really, authentically motivated to transform their classroom, reimagine what education could look like. They don't have a lot of influence over the school board or the school, but they want to change their classroom. What advice would you give to them? 
Um, just be just to be very understanding and understanding about that every student in the classroom learns differently and some have the preferences of how they want to learn and you use those ideas that they give you and then put it into your own system that fits them and you make the classroom and learning enjoyable for them because um with thrive with thrive it's, it's been it's been enjoyable because all of us have been have been like given our own ideas like we feel like that we have a part in something that can change like the future for for the school system and um like i said earlier you know we i thrive like this is like the foundation of what we want school to be and so with our engagement guides being very understanding and um with nicole being very understanding it really helped us like reach our not i won't say our full potential because i'm pretty sure we have much more to add on to but it helped us um, grow a lot and a lot has changed since last year since it started since i've started and so when you implement what we've been doing here into a school um into a classroom you know with 30 other kids you know it's it's kind of crazy to think about like how creative that classroom would be because of how um many different type of minds can work so i feel like a teacher being new teacher being introduced to you know the school classroom can be very under should be very understanding it's very yeah it's uh, it's just that again understanding open the opportunities for for students to make those contributions for sure anaya let's go to you um advice for teachers wanting to reimagine what the experience looks like in their classroom um, personally, I think talk to your students. That's the best thing you could do because they're the ones that you're essentially working to help or you're working for, for them. Um, I think listen to their ideas, anything, any input that you can get. Um, even kids my age, like um, I'm in the youth, St. Paul Youth Commission also, and we are talking about um, talking to these people about a design for a new community center. And one of my friends said, we should get a slide for stairs. Just simple things like that. And you know, with however, whatever age your kids are, the younger, the better is when they can start, you know, designing their own education, you'll get stuff like that. But you have to take it into consideration if you want involvement, if you want co-design, if you want your, your, um, classroom to thrive you know it's yeah. interesting when you say listen to your students I, I think even even from there we have to as adults be willing to reach out to students and, and ask the questions about what is it you're interested in learning what could make the school experience a better experience for you because in in, in all honesty we can't listen to you if we don't ask the questions to begin with so uh, I love that and we need to to, to listen so um, Anaya Tiante Nathan um, as I, as I said to Nicole last week, I, I am just so excited about the potential the work at Thrive Ed has um, in store for, for you, for schools, um, not just now, but for generations to come. I, I think there's, there's, there's something here that is going to serve as a real model for, um, 
for success and redefining and of course reimagining what school will look like in the future. Um, and, I, and I hope maybe one day we can have you on again to come back and update us a little bit on, on how things are going and, and give us a chance to, uh, to hear from you. But we're gonna finish up with a couple of things. I always finish every interview with a bit of fun. We've had, you know, obviously a very serious conversation here and, and, uh, and it's a conversation that's needed and it's warranted and it's one that we have to continue to have. However, we are going to finish with a fun little exercise I call uh, this or that. So I'm gonna present each of you with uh, two choices, um, nothing too intense, but just some fun. This will give listeners a chance to get to know you a little bit on a personal level and uh, just have some fun with this. And I'm gonna go to each of you. So each of you will, will answer each of these questions and you, know, you don't know what's coming. So I'm gonna put you on the spot here. Um, and I'm gonna start with Tiante. Here's the first one. Here are your two choices. Now, if your two choices don't work, feel free to go with a third alternative and just give us a quick sort of why. So when you pick your choices, give us a why, that's your choice. So here's the first one, Snapchat or TikTok? If I, if I want to be entertained by random people I don't know, I will go to TikTok. Okay. But I will, I will but other than that, I would choose Snapchat. Snapchat, TikTok. Okay becomes a lot and it's very addicting and it takes a lot of time yeah. it takes yeah. a lot i remember i remember one day i was supposed to be doing homework and i fell into the trap of getting a tiktok notification and then found myself still on tiktok four hours later at 12 o'clock midnight so yeah i almost <laughs> definitely choose snapchat <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, there is nothing. We used to talk about the YouTube rabbit hole, but the, uh, the TikTok rabbit hole is something, right? Um, Anaya, what about you? TikTok or, or Snapchat? TikTok. TikTok. Because Snapchat is also addicting in like the most <laughs> terrible way. Like, what am I even doing on here? You know? <laughs> so definitely TikTok because definitely TikTok. it's very entertaining. Yeah, it is entertaining for sure. Nathan, TikTok or Snapchat? TikTok hands down. TikTok uh, hands down. Yeah, no, like, I like really like tight knit friend group. And like, the only reason I ever use Snapchat is like for group chat, group chats and like looking at people's stories. Mm -hmm. But it's like, I have a text message group chat with the same people. I have an Instagram group chat with the same people. Yeah. I have a Snapchat group chat with the same people. Mm -hmm. So it's like, and TikTok is addictive. And <laughs> It's becoming a problem now. Yeah, so. I, I have heard that. I've heard that it's, uh, I don't know, anybody that doesn't say TikTok is, nobody, I know nobody says TikTok's not addictive. It's just one of those things where they just have, they dialed you right in. They've got you figured out for sure. I, I don't know how they do it, but. I don't know either. All right, let's go to the next one. Um, Anaya, I'm going to start with you. Uh, movie at home or watching a movie in the, uh, obviously it's COVID now, we, maybe it's a different experience, but all things being equal, movie at home or movie in the theater? I'm going to say the theater. It's a better okay. experience. Um, I have been watching a lot of movies at home recently, and mm -hmm. I miss the theater. Yeah. Yeah. Nathan, what about you? I've actually never, like, watched a movie at home. Like, oh. I just don't have the stamina to sit on my couch and stare at my TV for so long. Yeah. I just never – it's just not the same. Like, I'm going to go on my phone. I'm just going to, like, leave for, like, half an hour. Yeah. Like, in a movie theater, I feel more commitment because – I just dropped like $10 on a three hour experience, but like, yeah, I don't know. It's also nice okay. to get out of the house. For sure. Stare at the screen. Right. Right. Deontay, movie at home, movie in theater. Um, 
Um, I would definitely say movie at theater. Um, because you know, it's just a better experience than I'm pretty sure that if I watch Toy Story 3 in, in theaters and then I watch Toy Story 3 at home, I'll have the better experience okay. at the movie theater. So, yeah, okay. All right, Nathan, we're coming, we're going to start with you on the third one here. Uh, here are your two choices big party or a small gathering, which is your preference. Big gathering, big party, or a small gathering? From a public health standpoint. Well, <laughs> we're talking hypothetical, Nathan. We know that obviously big gatherings now are challenging. <laughs> uh, no, small small gatherings. I don't know. Yeah, uh, yeah definitely. I don't really have much justification. But yeah, no, no problem. Tiante, what do you think? Uh, I would most definitely say small gatherings. Small I'm gathering. not really the big gathering people type okay anaya if it's for me a small (laughs) gathering okay but a party you can never go wrong with the party no yeah yeah that's my take on that okay but i'm gonna say small gathering yeah small gathering okay okay uh we are at number four here so let's talk about tiante i think we're back to you to start with uh here's your two choices amusement park or day at the beach Mm, that's a good one. Um, amusement park. Amusement park. Yeah, I would say that because um, the beach, the beach gets old. When I mean old, like it gets it gets hot, like very hot later on. Right. And so until it's like when the sun goes down, but even when it starts setting, it, it it's still hot because of the sand, right. it just burns my feet. You know, I like the rides. Like the rides. Park, so good. Anaya, day at the beach, amusement park. Amusement park. Yeah. The lines can be annoying, but I love rides. Yeah. Okay. Nathan? Uh, I think your day at the beach is probably a lot different than what we consider a day at the beach. Like a day at the beach in Minneapolis is like sitting at like a little like 50 feet beach on like a lake that usually has like algae and gets closer to the summer because like <laughs> dog died from drinking the water. So like I cannot do that all day. There you go. And then amusement parks are just more fun. There you go. All right. I've got uh, actually two more here just uh, real quick. And again, feel free to, uh, to go to a third alternative. Anaya, we're going to start with you. Soft or hard shell tacos? I'm a soft shell person. Yeah. Soft shells all the way. Yeah. They're just in like they're just top tier. Next level. That's right. Nathan, soft shell, hard shell tacos. Yeah, I was driving home today and there was like a taco truck and I was like, <laughs> quesadilla doesn't sound so bad right now. There you go. So you're and soft I, shell for sure. No, I didn't either. Just like get a burrito or quesadilla, don't try and like Okay. It's also more physically responsible. <laughs> there you go. Tiante, soft or hard shell tacos? I would choose hard shell if it's the Cool Ranch from Taco Bell. That's the only time I would choose um, hard shell. Hard shell. Other than that, soft shell. Yeah, Yeah, soft shell. Okay, last one for you all. This isn't a this or that, but this is just a question I'm going to pose to you. Just interested in your thoughts. Um, The one place in the world that you fantasize about traveling to. Nathan, uh, I'm going to start with you. What is the one place in the world that you you think like one day in my life I'm going to go there? Uh, I was supposed to study abroad this summer in uh, Seoul, South Korea, but then 
life happened. Life so happened, exactly. We go back and do it again, probably go to Seoul. Seoul, interesting. Tiante, what do you think? One place in the world that you think about you'd love to travel to one day? I, I don't think it would be on Earth. I think mm. it would be somewhere out in space. Wow. Like, I don't know, because I'm just fascinated with, you know, this outside of our own world you know it's mm -hmm. there is a lot a lot a lot of possibilities out there and a lot of stuff that's out there wow. too so wow. yeah. that's very interesting for sure anaya the one place in the world or or not our world that you would like to travel to <laughs> i love that hey mom um, i'm going to jupiter today no i'm just <laughs> kidding <laughs> That's um, awesome. Uh, Anaya, go ahead. This is going to be very basic, but I just always wanted to go to LA. Mm. And I'm just going to say it. Yeah. It just seems so lively and fun. Yeah. yeah. But also, I want to go to Africa. Okay. Well, there you go. Yeah. So you pick two places and, and for sure. Any particular country in Africa that you're, you're thinking about? Um, I just remember reading this book in middle school and they were into uh what's it zimbabwe mm. and i just always like the name is cool okay yeah. all right <laughs> there you go <laughs> and i just always wanted to go there after that yeah. so yeah yeah awesome yeah that's cool okay i've got one final question for you and i'm going to wrap things up um and this is something i've asked every individual that i've interviewed so far and of course you're a group of three but uh i'm going to ask this question of each uh each of you and uh, Tiante, we're going to begin with you. And it's a question about success. One of the things that I'm trying to do on the podcast is expand this to not just be about education, but, but to be a, a podcast where we also explore the concept of success and happiness and, and what that means. So the question I've asked each of the people I've interviewed so far is a more sort of open-ended question around success. And it is this, um, if a random person stopped you on the street and asked you, what is your definition of success? What would you say to them? Deontay, let's start with you. My definition of success would be just being at peace with yourself. And when I say that, I mean, uh, knowing that, knowing that you had a goal in mind mm -hmm. and that you did everything that you could with your willpower to reach that goal, no matter if you failed, no matter if you achieved it, you know that at the end of the day that you tried your best. Mm -hmm. And that um, you can live with that, and that brings peace to to yourself. And so, yeah. I feel like that's the true meaning. Well, I wouldn't say the true because you know other people have different definitions yeah. of success, but that's my meaning of yeah. success: just being at peace with yourself. Yeah, well, that's that's the question: is how would you answer them? So, yeah, I love that, mm -hmm. Anaya. Um, when I think of success, I think of like family and like my own household, and just having that like this is the product of me and like this is what I like this is what came from you know me with children and you know all that um and just knowing that I built a, a healthy and happy and successful family also just being in a place where you are um being in a place where you just feel fulfilled um in any area of life also being feeling like you're at peace and like have that sense of self-love yeah that's what i think about 
It's, uh, and both, it's interesting, both of you have mentioned being at peace with yourself. Uh, Nathan, final, final one to you. Um, what is your definition of success? What does success mean to you? I don't know. Just being able to like take a step back and realize that it's all going to be okay. I mean, like in high school, you're just kind of like grades. That is success. There we go. I mentioned grades and test scores in every answer. But you always say, you know, that means success. And it's like, you know, you kind of look back and you're like, did I waste four years of my life only worrying about a certain thing? And it's like, did that equivocate success? Uh, and I think success is a lot more than a job and a salary. Uh, but it's, you know, being able to feel like, you know, you're going to do all right and you're going to be happy no matter what route you take. And just knowing that there are multiple you know, routes down the road that you'll be able to take regardless of your, you know, plans for the future. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap things up. Listeners, I would really encourage you to check out the Thrive Ed website. That's www.thrive-ed.org for all of the information about the amazing work that is happening uh, with these three students, as well as their other uh, colleagues who are working there. Um, and everything that's that's happening. And, and remember, uh, if you can, if you have the means, uh, maybe consider a small donation uh, to keep this this work uh, alive and, and happening. Uh, Nathan, Anaya, Teante, I, I cannot thank you enough uh, for joining me today. This has been incredibly informative, um, inspiring, and I hope like I said, down the road, we can have you back, maybe give us some updates on, on what, what's been happening and, and the incredible impact that you are having, um, not just on the education system. I, I have a sneaking suspicion that the three of you are not only going to have a positive impact and an incredible impact on the education system, but you are going to have a great impact on society as a whole. Um, so I, I, like I said, I can't thank you enough. I really appreciate you taking the time to be here. I know it's been a busy day for you with school and everything, but I just want to thank you for taking the time to join me today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Our first story in the news this week was an announcement uh, between the UK and Kenya announcing that they will co-host a major education summit next year in 2021. Now, it's intended to raise funds for an organization called the Global Partnership for Education. And I don't normally pay a lot of attention to, you know, these big sort of intergovernmental summits. They, they normally are more political than substantive. And uh, I, you don't often see the, the fruits of the labor uh, in the actual schools or in the outcomes. Often they're just, you know, ways for for political figures and politicians to make themselves feel better. But certainly the cause uh, and the focus being on uh, prosperity in education for girls, um, you know, talking about the idea that for girls, education in, in many countries is their ticket out of poverty and a way for them to sort of forge their own path ahead. Um, you know, I'm going to keep an eye on this one, actually, because I'm always interested to see uh, and I don't normally pay attention to these types of announcements, but I really do want to pay attention to this one if I can. I'll do the best I can because I think it would be interesting to see what type of substance comes out of that summit and what type of goals or what type of, type of funding or what kind of support will be given uh, to, to educating uh, all students, but specifically uh, girls in Kenya. Um, just interested to see where that goes. 
Our second story comes from San Diego, and it's the San Diego Unified School District announcing this week that they are changing their grading practices and policies to be more equitable and less punitive, and that the focus will be that academic grades will be based on how well a student knows a subject, not on factors related to behaviors. Of course, uh, many of you who know the work I do and others do, we've been talking about this for many, many years now. Uh, so the San Diego Unified School District is going to eliminate what they're calling non-academic factors. And part of it is to revamp the policies to be more fair and equitable. Uh, some of the statistics that were quoted in the news story, uh, black students received D's and F's 20% of the time uh, when they did a review of the, the grades. Hispanic students 23% of the time, while white students only received D's and F's 7% of the time, and Asian students it was 6% of the time. So when they looked at the first semester of last school year, that was where uh, the numbers kind of came down. Uh, students with disabilities received uh, D's and F's 25% of the time, and English language learners 30% of the time. So what the approach is really talking about is the idea of, of trying to close some of these unfair disparities in, in grading practices and how students experience grading. So the focus, of course, is on mastery of standards, and they talked about that in the article, of course, what does it mean to meet standards, and, and how we approach grading from the perspective of only taking into account the quality of the evidence that the student has produced. And in this article, they also reference the challenges and issues with traditional grading practices. And of course, that is something that has to be discussed all the time. You know, I run into this consistently, which is the mindset that traditional grading is just fine and that this whole standards-based approach is somehow coming up and, and disrupting what has always been a very sound and good system. And I think that's just one of the most dishonest ways to approach this conversation. The uh, traditional grading systems that we've used are wrought with inconsistencies and inadequacies and inaccuracies and so on and so forth. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit in Assessment Corner. Uh, but this approach is really an honest approach to say, you know, the way we've traditionally graded, it, it hasn't always worked. And it most definitely has not worked for, for everyone. So we want to avoid, I think the approach and what the story is outlining is trying to avoid grading being this arbitrary process and making sure it doesn't differ widely. Now, there was some interesting things in the article as well, because there's a student uh, trustee, um, uh, Zachary Patterson, and, and you heard uh, the students from Thrive Ed earlier talking about, hey, let's have a, a student on the school board. Well, San Diego Unified has a student trustee. Uh, his name is Zachary Patterson, and he pointed out there's a couple of policies that I think are um, – maybe a little misguided, and it feels like they're going to go back and revise those. One was a provision in the policy that said that students would be consequenced or punished if they know another student is cheating, but they don't report it. Uh, that just seems to, I mean, I get the intent, but boy, are you putting students in a really tough situation and then having their consequences be the result of other students' actions that they had nothing to do with. Um, and the other policy was that students' citizenship grades, so as we separate behavior from academics, student citizenship grades would be affected if a student or their parent asks for a grade change for reasons other than a clerical error. And again, as, as we all think about trying to create more student agency, uh, having situations where students feel comfortable approaching and, and questioning and asking, can you show me why this is, that policy for me seems to do the opposite. It seems to discourage uh, students and parents from approaching teachers. And I, I, I think I know 
where they're coming from. I don't know directly, but I feel like what they're trying to do is say, look, unless you have a, a substantial reason, uh, then, then, you know, let's not just go, for, let's not just complain about your grade. But the way those policies at least are outlined in the story, and I think Zachary's point points are well taken, that these may not align with fairness and equity. They may not be, uh, even though there's an intent there, they may not be aligned with the goals of the policy. But Overall, I think you have to applaud San Diego Unified for going, sort of going the distance and saying, let's put this, let's make this a board policy so that there's clarity around what's expected when it comes to grading and reporting. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to bring forward a question I was actually asked this past week in a Zoom PD session. And the question was, Tom, if we're thinking about moving towards standards-based grading, uh, where should we start? Now, before I get into the specifics of that and, and outlining three big ideas that I think are really important to get some agreement on, just remember not to make a meal out of it. I always tell people SBG equals GBS. In other words, standards-based grading means grading based on standards. Don't make more out of it than that because that's what it is. What I find odd is that for at least 20 years, if not more, every jurisdiction across Canada and the United States has had some form of curricular standards or outcomes. I mean, we've been teaching that way for a very long time, or at least we were supposed to be teaching that way for a long time, right? I'm not naive enough to think that the existence, the mere existence of standards or outcomes means that we're teaching to those outcomes in terms of cognitive complexity, etc. I get that. But if we can agree that only evidence of learning will be used to determine an achievement grade, kind of like what San Diego Unified was talking about, and that all non-achievement factors are cut out, we'll be in a good place to begin having the conversation. Now, of course, there are nuances, right? Do I use the most recent evidence? Do I use the more recent evidence? All of those kinds of questions. But remember, we have to start somewhere. So getting some initial agreements is sometimes the most effective and efficient way to make sure that conversations carry forward. Now, those three big ideas I was talking about, the first one is that students should not be able to directly behave their way up or down the achievement scale. So, of course, here we're talking about eliminating the idea of penalties, but also eliminating the idea of extra credit. In either direction, it's problematic because it essentially, in either direction, distorts the achievement levels. So we know that behavior and learning are inextricably linked. Obviously, we're dealing with one student or one child. And sure, there are some behaviors that are academic enablers like work ethic and responsibility, etc. But we need to think about behavioral consequences or responses for behavioral missteps and then academic consequences for academic missteps. In other words, if you produce lesser quality evidence of learning at that moment, then you would be rated at a lower level in terms of how much you know. For some reason, this traditional mindset of thinking we have to impact the grade when someone behaviorally missteps, like, like handing in something late, for some reason, this seems to be a, a real challenge for us, and yet we disprove this theory on a daily basis, right? So the idea that schools, in order to hold kids accountable for their irresponsible behavior, need to penalize them, and yet on a daily basis, schools hold students accountable for their disrespectful behavior, without ever touching the grade book. So irresponsibility, why is that different? So, and, and don't give me, listen, don't, you know, don't give me the real world argument. Just go back to episode two and listen to uh, the opening segment there. Uh, 
So the first agreement that we want to try to get to is can we all just agree that we are only going to use the evidence of learning that students produce to accurately determine their grades? And this is another part that I, I want you to remember. Don't lose the plot. Why are we moving to standards-based grading or whatever iteration we're thinking about? The whole goal is to ensure that what we report about student achievement is accurate in terms of where that student is. We don't want this disconnect between what we know to be true in the classroom and what ends up on a report card. Okay, number two, a student's grade should not be dependent upon who their teacher is. Now, two teachers teaching the same grade level subject must have an aligned view of quality and excellence and determine grades in a similar or like-minded fashion, or you're going to have reliability issues. And that is non-negotiable. We can't have these wide swinging or different views of what excellence looks like. You have one set of outcomes or standards. Those outcomes and standards are set at a particular level of cognitive complexity. We have to come to an agreement and have the idea and a vision of what excellence looks like. There should be no such thing as having high standards or low standards because you have these standards. And so this is not about dismissing individual autonomy, right? Or dismissing it or, or diminishing it. Students at the very least should expect fair and equitable approaches to grading regardless of who their teacher is. And only focusing on quality does that. And having these agreements about what excellence looks like will accomplish that goal. Now third, a student's grade should never be about their relative standing in comparison to other students. It's the student versus the criteria, that's it. Now comparing student to student for the purpose of grading is first a distraction from the core purpose of grading, which is determining achievement. And two, it makes excellence a sliding scale. Now, when excellence is determined by sort of the class composition, that's not rigor. That's a sliding scale that sort of is contingent upon who's in the room. So who else is in the room should have no bearing on a student's level of performance on either a single standard or their overall grade. And I don't really get this obsession with comparing students to students. I mean, I understand it where parents and students are concerned. I mean, I understand where they're coming from, right? Um, I don't agree with them, but I, I, I understand. I don't think it's relevant, but I understand where they're coming from. I mean, the combination of ego and insecurity is what causes parents and students to ask the question, how do I compare to others? But for us as educators, I just can't quite wrap my head around why we care so much about comparing one student to another. So these three big ideas, it's not being able to behave your way up or down the achievement scale, making sure your grade is not dependent upon who your teacher is, and making sure that my grade is not the result of me being compared to my classmates. Those three, three big ideas are what will lay a foundation for schools moving forward. And again, as I mentioned earlier, there's going to be details and nuances that need to be discussed. You'll, you'll have to refine it in all likelihood, but at least there'll be a consistent foundation upon which to have future conversations. This week, I want to encourage you all to follow Matt Townsley on Twitter. Uh, his Twitter handle is at mctownsley, and that's L-E-Y at the end. Uh, so Matt Townsley on uh, Twitter. Uh, Matt is an assistant professor of educational leadership at the University of Northern Iowa. Uh, he is also the author of Making Grades Matter. Uh, he wrote that, co-authored that with Nathan Weir. Uh, so I might as well give you Nathan's Twitter handle as well. So it's at... Nathan underscore Weir, W-E-A-R. 
Uh, Matt is a great follow because not only does Matt put out his own content on Twitter, uh, he also uh, is a great source for stories, uh, things that are that are happening that are relevant, mostly in the areas of assessment and grading, uh, as well as Matt curates a number of lists about his favorite articles or favorite books around assessment and grading and all of that. So I just I think Matt, Matt again is someone that uh, I would encourage you to follow. Um, he again produces that content and is someone that I think you'll you'll get some consistent sort of ideas from and someone who is a great contributor to the overall conversation about assessment. That's all the time we have for today. Uh, I know we went a bit long, but I thought we needed to hear from Nathan, Anaya, and Tiante. Uh, remember again, the virtual workshops coming up this fall, Grading from the Inside Out. Virtual workshops will be November 9th and 10th, as well as December 10th and 11th. The two-day workshop on standards-based learning in action with Garnet Hillman will be October 26th and 27th. Information about all of those workshops can be found on the solutiontree.com website. Remember to follow the podcast Twitter account as well for updates. Uh, my Twitter handle is at Tom Shimmer. The podcast Twitter handle is at Tom Shimmer Pod. Also, please send me your questions or topics for Assessment Corner. If there's just things you want me to discuss or talk about on the podcast, TomShimmerPod at gmail.com. Next week, my guest will be Tim Stewart. He is the head of school at the International Community School in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. We're going to talk about what it's been like during COVID in an international setting. We're also going to talk about all things international education. You know, how do you get into international education? Why is it such a great experience? What are the ups? What are the downsides? Um, and we're also going to talk about personalized learning. That's something I know Tim is very passionate about. Not only has he written about it, but he speaks about it as well. So again, thanks for joining me this week. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, as well as spread the word. I would, as always, greatly appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone. 